Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 46. It's a story about a group of men who are aptly named the Irish Mafia, confidants of President Kennedy's. And today's story is about two of those men, Kenneth O'Donnell and Dave Powers, both of which were riding in the car that was directly behind the president's limousine that day in Dealey Plaza. You know, in a sense, we're saying goodbye to Dealey Plaza. These last few episodes are, in some ways, the last few things that you pick up and put in the car before you continue the journey westward, westward to the Golden Gate. We would be remiss if we left the plaza without talking about Kenneth O'Donnell and Dave Powers. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 46. It was September 12, 1977, and a funeral mass was being held in the Blessed Sacrament Roman Catholic Church in Jamaica Plain. If you were a passerby, you would have known there was something more to today's ceremony. President Kennedy's widow, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, was in attendance that day. They were there to lay Kenneth O'Donnell to rest and to pay their last respects. In some ways, it was a quiet ceremony, but the sadness around it was multiplied. Former Speaker of the House John William McCormick was there as well, and other men and women from high places. Kenneth O'Donnell was only 53 years old. Later, there would be a time to talk about the reasons why he had died and gone to the Lord so soon, but not on that day. Later, his, his daughter Helen would quietly tell the story the story that everyone close to Kenny O'Donnell knew already, that he had died of complications born of alcoholism. He was part of the Irish Mafia, actually an endearing term to this group of men that surrounded President Kennedy during his term in office and prior to that time as well. These were a group of men who became friends with Robert and Jack and did it early in life a group of men that Kennedy was viciously loyal to, and more importantly in some ways, a group of men that were viciously loyal to him. These were Irish Catholics, men from Boston, men that rode the wave of Camelot. He and Dave Powers would be the core of that crew. Kenneth O'Donnell and Dave Powers were riding in the car that was right behind the president's limousine that moment on Elm Street on November 22nd. They saw what happened that day. Clearly, they had a bird's-eye view. Perhaps there are no two eyewitnesses that day, with the exception of Jackie Kennedy herself, that had such an intimate relationship with the president. The original thoughts of these two men, their official testimony, and then later perhaps the real truth that came out about what they thought, seems to be so consistent with the story of this assassination. It's really hard to say farewell to Dealey Plaza without spending a moment on what these two men thought 
and said and what they saw. They were men of the greatest generation, as that term is coined. History, by chance, really thrusted them alongside the dapper Kennedys. All of them with their thick Boston accents that tied them together like glue and really all part of a great crusade in a group that was handpicked by the president and his brother. And all of them knowing that once they had reached the White House, it was, well, I guess in my terms, it was welcome to the NFL, baby. This was showtime at the highest altitude. The long personal bond that existed between them would be essential to surviving the high wire act that is the presidency. High leadership is a lonely place, and high men always bring their closest friends with them, especially in a place where no one that is new to the team is totally trustable, at least not at first, especially not in Washington. That was their ticket to Camelot, for Kenneth O'Donnell and David Powers were loyal soldiers till the very end. Before we begin, before we tell the story of what happened with their testimony and what they saw that day in Dealey Plaza, let's say a little bit about these men that were so close to the president. I think it's safe to say that a part of Kenneth O'Donnell died that day on November 22nd, And later, more of his own soul would perish in 1968 when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. O'Donnell never really recovered from this double blow to the head. He would be dead himself nine years after Bobby. O'Donnell served as a political consultant, and he was a special assistant and appointments secretary to President Kennedy, beginning in 1961 and up until the time of the president's assassination. He was both a close friend of the president's and his younger brother, Robert. Like most men of age born in that era, he served in World War II. He was in the U.S. Army Air Force between 1942 and 45, where he flew 30 missions as a bombardier as part of a B-17 squadron before being shot down over Belgium. This was a guy that was caught by the enemy after being shot down. He was imprisoned and then escaped from the enemy prison camp. And after it was all over, he earned the Distinguished Flying Cross and Air Medal. Like his brother, O'Donnell, after the war was over, would attend Harvard. And that's where he met Robert Kennedy. Both he and Robert were on the Harvard football team together. O'Donnell became a team captain in 1948, and he and Robert never looked back, and they were close friends for the rest of Robert's life. Bobby got O'Donnell to work on JFK's first congressional campaign back in 1946, and later O'Donnell would become heavily involved in JFK's 1952 Senate campaign. The bond was growing. Then the Senate in 1957 would put together a labor rackets committee, and he would work with Robert Kennedy as an assistant counsel to Robert, who was the chief counsel of the committee. Then O'Donnell joined JFK's Senate staff in 1958 in the ever-increasing high-wire act associated with the Kennedy brothers' political ambitions. And the moment they hit the White House, he became a special assistant to the president and appointment secretary. This was a man with a fierce commitment and a personal loyalty and friendship for both the president and Bobby Kennedy, and he was a man that knew politics. This was a man who had learned how to fight He was a man that stood up in the storm and kept coming for more, starting at a pretty young age. He was just the kind of man that a young president from Boston needed around him. Dave Power's story is a little different. Dave was a little older than Ken. 
And unlike Ken O'Donnell, he was not an elite Harvard man. Although Dave did take classes at Harvard, and he was a smart man in his own right, for sure. But Dave Powers got his origins in the areas of Boston that the commoners inhabit, and not among the manicured houses in a place like Chestnut Hill. He had different life experiences than the others, and Kennedy liked that, and he knew it was invaluable to the team. Dave Powers was the son of Irish immigrants. His father died when he was two years old, and starting at the age of 10, Powers sold newspapers in the Charleston Navy Yard. He did this to help support his mother and his siblings. He graduated from Charlestown High School in 1930, and he worked in the Boston publishing business for the next 10 years or so, taking evening courses at Boston College and Harvard. Like O'Donnell, Powers served in World War II, and he rose to the rank of Master Sergeant. He was in the U.S. Army Air Corps, serving in the 14th Air Force, and he found his way into the China-Burma-India Theater. At home, he was active in the church, and at one time, he served as the chief usher at St. Catherine of Siena Church in Charlestown. Unlike O'Donnell, Powers didn't go to school with the Kennedys. Powers met Kennedy in 1946 when JFK was a candidate for the Massachusetts 11th Congressional District. Kennedy got wind of him and heard that he was a guy that could help you understand the people and the issues in that district, and that Powers might be vital to helping Kennedy win the race. Like I said, Dave Powers wasn't from that part of town, so to speak, and he viewed JFK as a millionaire son from Harvard. It would take some convincing, and he knew he had to understand and be convinced about how Kennedy was going to help the working people of the 11th District. One night, Kennedy showed up to give a speech to the Gold Star Mothers. That was a group of mothers that lost sons in World War II. This is something that Kennedy could speak to, given his own background, and it was a heartfelt speech, and that was enough for Dave to be convinced it was time for him to join the campaign. Powers had a quick wit, and the way he styled it very much attracted Kennedy to him personally. As one person would later put it, Kennedy enjoyed Powers' mischievous sense of humor. Over the years, he would be one of the most well-liked in the Irish Mafia, as they called it, and in that group, he really had no peer when it came to his relationship with the president. We all know the rather famous and infamous stories of JFK's womanizing. I don't think there is any denying that. How extensive it was perhaps might be a matter of debate, but not that it was going on. Powers, as a trusted friend and confidant, was seemingly pulled into that tight circle that helped to facilitate these antics of the president. The general rumor is that it was Powers' job to ensure that women were available for Kennedy. Powers was a go-between of sorts for many of the trysts. There are many more stories about all of this, but it's beyond the scope of this episode to explore them. But there is no doubt that these two men, JFK and Dave Powers, had about as close a relationship that you could have in the midst of the president's time in the White House. Powers uh, had an amazing memory for statistics, and he was especially fond of baseball stats. And he might have been just as good at memorizing and recalling election stats. When he got to the White House, he served as a special assistant to the president and the assistant appointment secretary. O'Donnell was the principal person in the White House responsible for the parade route that day in Dallas. He had worked that out with various officials in Texas. One often overlooked fact surrounding the assassination is that Dave Powers was taking movie pictures that day. 
Here he was in the car directly behind the president taking movie film of the crowd and at times pointing the camera directly at the back of the presidential limousine, the limousine that was right in front of them that day. He began filming as they left Love Field. Unfortunately, he ran out of film around 1217, 13 minutes too soon to have recorded what might have been the most important view of the assassination kill shot. That film, taken right behind the president, had it actually been taken, might have resolved whether the final fatal shot came from behind or from the side. It might have resolved other matters related to the other shots as well that were fired at the president and Governor Conley. What a mighty big if. I wonder how much Powers thought about that in the aftermath. Well, everyone had something to think about in the aftermath. Makes me think of the agony that must have haunted Agent Greer, the man behind the wheel that day in the presidential limousine, a man who hit the brakes and slowed the limousine down after the sound of the first shots rang out. Hit the brakes rather than speeding up. The fatal shot was, in terms of accuracy and ability to kill the president, literally a matter of inches. History altered permanently by hitting the brakes and not the gas for just one sheer moment. On May 18, 1964, O'Donnell provided testimony to two Warren Commission attorneys, including Arlen Specter, who was present that day to conduct the interview. O'Donnell's official testimony is not very involved, but quite clear, and in it, he stated that the shots fired at Kennedy came from the right rear. There is no discussion of any shots coming from the front or around the grassy knoll. In 1970, he and Dave Powers would team up and write a book together called Johnny We Hardly Knew Ye. In that book, they would talk a bit about the assassination, saying that they had heard only three shots and they offered no speculation as to their origin. But the hanging chad, so to speak, regarding O'Donnell's official testimony versus what he really thought would surface soon again. By the way, Powers was never called to testify before the Warren Commission. It was only O'Donnell who gave testimony, even though they were both together in the car behind the presidential limousine. In 1975, there appeared a story in the Chicago Tribune citing an unnamed Central Intelligence Agency liaison. This liaison told a congressman that both O'Donnell and David Powers had initially told assassination investigators that the shots that struck Kennedy came from a location other than the Texas School Book Depository. But the two men were convinced, reportedly by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover or his top aides, to alter their accounts to the Warren Commission and that they did so and they were asked to do so to avoid the possibility of revealing the CIA plots to kill Fidel Castro, letting this dog lie, so to speak. Well, Hoover was purported to have used a narrative here that you'll hear more about in future episodes, a narrative that may have started with Hoover, but I suspect started with Johnson. This was a kind of incident that could spark a nuclear confrontation and 40 million lives could be at risk. That was the narrative. Surely you should lie for the good of the country here, son. You understand, don't you? Don't you, son? That would not be the only story that would be told about what they really thought privately about the whole thing. Tip O'Neill was a famous Bostonite. 
He became Speaker of the House, and he was a legendary figure in American politics. And he wrote about it in his own biography, Man of the House. In Tip O'Neill's own words, imagine him speaking these words in that booming baritone voice of his. I won't do it justice, but here is what he said. I was never one of these people who had doubts or suspicions about the Warren Commission's report on the president's death. But five years after Jack died, I was having dinner with Kenny O'Donnell and a few other people at Jimmy's Harborside Restaurant in Boston, and we got to talking about the assassination. I was surprised to hear O'Donnell say that he was sure he had heard two shots that came from behind the fence. That's not what you told the Warren Commission, I said. You're right, he replied. I told the FBI what I had heard, but they said it couldn't have happened that way and that I must have been imagining things. So I testified the way they wanted me to. I just didn't want to stir up any more pain and trouble for the family. I can't believe it, I said. I wouldn't have done that in a million years. I would have told the truth. Tip, you have to understand, the family, everybody, wanted this behind them. That's telling, isn't it? There are other private moments reported on where Dave Powers stood by the same story that Kenny O'Donnell told that night at Jimmy's Harborside Restaurant. However, neither of them would come out publicly as having said anything different than what was said in the official testimony. O'Donnell having been the only one of the two that actually testified before the Warren Commission under oath at the time of the assassination. I have told the story of these two men often over the years, and you know, each time I, I wonder myself why they, of all people in that motorcade, why they didn't insist on the truth being told. These were men who saw it firsthand, men in the highest places of government, men who were like brothers to the man, the president, who was just murdered. I know that there must have been every kind of emotion in the aftermath, right? I mean, how could there not be? We know what it did to Kenneth O'Donnell. It killed him. It just took longer than the assassin's bullet did to administer the lethal dose of inhumanity that came with the murder of his beloved friend and confidant. He was to receive the final injection of that lethal dose in 1968 when Bobby was assassinated. Yes, life did not end for either Dave Powers or Kenneth O'Donnell on November 22, 1963. It never does for the survivors. But Camelot was gone, and their lives were permanently affected. O'Donnell would stay in politics and join Bobby Kennedy again as he sought the nomination in 1968, only to be shattered twice. He would seek his own political aspirations after that, running for governor of Massachusetts twice and losing twice, and the final time hardly registering in the popularity polls with less than 10% of the vote. It was an ignominious political end for O'Donnell that must have contributed to the complexities of his life after JFK and the drinking and the alcoholism that came with it. This was a man who, in his life, had achieved one of the highest honors in academia, to be graduated from Harvard, to serve the country courageously as a member of the Army Air Force, and then survive capture by the enemy, actually managing to escape earning the highest of military honors, and then serve in progressively loftier government roles and finally as a member of the White House staff to a president he loved and who was an old friend. His pinnacle in life was high, 
higher than most people could ever dream of achieving, and it was achieved early. The country should be proud of him. Sorrow for us all that his mind could never quite comprehend the world in the aftermath of such multiple tragedies. Dave Powers was older, but he would go on to live a longer life and dedicate the better part of the remainder of his life to a noble cause. At the request of Robert Kennedy, he spent 14 years accumulating JFK's papers from 1965 to 1979. He then became the first curator of the John F. Kennedy Library and Museum at its opening in Boston in 1979, staying in that role some 15 years until his retirement in 1994, a role where every day he was assured to be among the documents, the photos, and the exhibits that reminded him so much of this man that he loved and adored. Powers passed away at the age of 86 in 1998. As I said just a minute ago, I've told and retold this story. But over the years, these two men have taught and retaught me something about the assassination that brings it back to earth, back to the here and now. There has been more written about the JFK assassination than any other murder case in the history of mankind. That makes for pretty fertile ground for someone like me to write and produce these stories. But it rarely reflects the critical conversations that went on between all these principal actors in this play. Things said between two people or a very small group that were not meant for public consumption, ever. And it is especially devoid of the obviously private conversations of the Kennedy family and their close friends, and others in the government who knew much about the goings-on at the time. The record is silent. And it will remain that way for eternity. With most of the actors gone now, they took those thoughts with them as they left this world, just like each of us will do with something in our own lives that is better left off the written page, better left in the moment of the conversation itself, vanished into thin air as soon as it was spoken. And now only recorded and preserved in the minds of those that were there right then and thus able to capture it in their own minds as best they could at its moment of origin. Those thoughts will never be found in a book or a newspaper, except on the rare occasion where someone betrayed a confidence for the better good or some personal gain. That wander is important because we are talking about the Kennedy's Irish Mafia, men who were fiercely loyal and who would have come out swinging if they had been told to do so. What we don't know are the conversations that went on behind the scenes. What we don't know is what might have been said in the quiet of Robert Kennedy's home to the one of them, or to the both of them. My take on this is that it's really very simple. They understood what had happened. It was a takeover by force of the government of the United States. They were merely marginal players now. A force much larger was at work, and Bobby himself was unwilling to wade into the controversy, perhaps for the exact reasons that were becoming clear to others by 1968, around the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro that were so intimately tied to Bobby himself. But there was certainly more, more that we will probably never know, the stuff that was once written down in private diaries. Certainly the wishes of the Kennedy family, including Jackie, and her concern for the safety of her children, all of that was most assuredly in those private conversations. 
But what was really said and what really drove this decision to stand down is a complex conversation that was lost to the wind, with the exception of a few moments where people did recite what was said in confidence. Soon you will hear what we know about a few of those moments. But for now, we have to finish packing because we are leaving Dealey Plaza very soon and there are only a couple of episodes left here at this location. And I guess that means there are still a few more suitcases that need to be placed in the trunk before we gather the kids and get on our way. Remember, we're headed to the Golden Gate. So join us in the next few episodes for the last couple of comments on what is now hallowed ground. Thank you for listening to episode 46 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.